Today we're in Mark chapter 12. And we'll read the chapter in just a moment, but let me first put it in context for us. Chapter 12 is part of a section in Mark that runs chapters 11, 12, and 13. 11, 12, 13 is a section in Mark. And the theme of the larger section, 11 to 13, is the authority of Jesus as God's Messiah King. Yesterday, Scotland recorded a famous victory, and uh, I had to get this in at least three times. And uh, you get to choose uh, on, I I think it's uh, uh, the red button, whatever that is on your telly, you get to listen to the referee, if you want, instead of the commentary. And uh, once or twice at the beginning of the game yesterday, the referee said, look, boys, and he was looking at the front row, and these big, solid fellows, I'm in charge. Listen to me. And uh, what chapters 11, 12, 13 are about in Mark is Jesus is king. And Scott concluded his prayer referring to Jesus as friend, savior, brother, king. Here in Mark 11, 12, 13, he's king. He's sovereign. He is frightening almost in his authority and dangerous and yet wonderfully liberating when you throw your lot behind him and follow him. So that's the theme of the chapters. Chapter 11 describes Jesus coming into Jerusalem as king and he goes to the temple and he sees hypocrisy and a surface veneer and he judges the temple And a chapter, or he judges the the Jewish people who have not fulfilled uh, God's expectations for them, who will not receive Jesus as their Messiah. And chapter 11 ends with a wonderful picture of gospel fruitfulness for those who follow him as king. Chapter 12, which uh, we will focus on and read in a moment, is all about a clash of authority. Where will we sit? Whose side are we on? That's the question. That's a real question for us. And if you're on the inside of God's kingdom, are you really following him as king? And then chapter 13 is a long block of teaching in Mark's gospel where Jesus says, look, I'm going to come back one day as judge of you all. So it's serious stuff. And let's read chapter 12, which is the center of this extended uh, unit. Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, in other words, when the owner expected there to be fruit. He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they, that is the people who were uh, controlling the vineyard, took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the master sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another 
and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They were right, so they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, these are the religious Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, in order to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. What they say, of course, is true, but they are entirely insincere in their motives in saying that to him. Is it lawful, here's their question, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, a coin, and let me look at it. And he brought one and he said to them, showing them the coin, I guess, whose face or likeness is the inscription? They said to him, it's got Caesar's head in it. Jesus said to them, we'll give it to him. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. But not for long, because four days later they would crucify him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard him disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself 
is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Right, that's our passage this morning. Let's pray that God will speak to us clearly from it. Our Father, confronted with the authority of Jesus as King, may we all, empowered by the Holy Spirit, submit to Jesus as King. May we give our all to Him, give our all for Him, and in so doing, may we find real purpose and pleasure in wholehearted commitment, for we pray in Jesus the King's name. Amen. Now, this section in Mark on the authority of Jesus as King, and chapter 12, at the heart of it in particular, is, as I mentioned before we read, frightening and wonderful at the same time. How do you think of the Lord Jesus? A Savior? His extravagant grace towards us? His selfless sacrificial death for us, my Savior. I hope you think of Jesus like that. Do you think of him as your friend or brother, as Scott prayed? I hope you do. I hope you feel that sense of intimate companionship and fellowship and solidarity and care from him and with him. I hope your heart warms when you think of him. I hope you love him. But he is also your king. And he is a king like no other king, mighty in his power, authority, and dominion. And he calls us to, expects of us, deserves, demands, Total allegiance, loyalty, devotion, and service. Because he is king. And so it is, I think, with a degree of trepidation that we read and study a passage like this where we see Jesus before us in astonishing power and sovereignty and inflexibility and authority and dominion. But it's also wonderful to follow a king of such immense authority and power and stature and dignity. It is wonderful because it is safe. There are people in life, leaders, that I would follow willingly. There are some Christian leaders that I would follow anywhere. But none like Jesus, nothing comes close to him. It is a privilege and a pleasure to follow him wholeheartedly. I hope you agree yesterday 
It's my second reference to Scotland's outstanding victory. When the Italians, and if you're an Italian, we love you, (laughs) but we're better than you at rugby. When Italy scored halfway through the game, the commentator said, for those of us who are neutral, I'm glad they have scored. And I, as you sometimes do, shouted at the television. Because how many people watching that game would be neutral? And it's just not the same, is it? When you watch sport or anything in life, whatever your interest, it's just not the same to be neutral as to be passionate. And in the Christian life, as frightening as the Lord Jesus is here, it is just not the same to be a kind of religious bystander who comes along occasionally to church and just kind of takes it in and contemplates and asks questions and muses over it all and observes objectively. It is just not the same as somebody who is totally devoted and passionate. Whether that means in an emotionally effusive way, if that's how you're wired, or in the entire opposite way, it's not about emotion, it's about devotion and commitment and zeal and following wholeheartedly. And that, as challenging as it is, is wonderfully liberating as a way to live. Now, the passage, as we expect from Mark, divides into three, and you'll see on the sheet there, firstly, verses 1 to 12, the consequences of rejecting Jesus as God's Messiah King. The parable of the tenants. The parable of the tenants explains the consequences of rejecting Jesus as God's Messiah King. It's about a man who planted a vineyard. He owned it. He rented it out to tenants, he gave to them the rights and responsibilities to bring forth fruit from that vineyard. At harvest time, the owner sent one of his servants to collect some of the fruit from the vineyard, but they beat the owner's servant and sent him away empty-handed him. The same thing happened to the next servant and to a whole series of servants after that, some of whom they killed. The only person that the owner of the vineyard had left to send was his beloved son. The owner thought, surely they will respect my son and heir. The tenants, however, determined to kill the son as the heir of the vineyard, so the vineyard would be theirs, which they did. And the consequence of rejecting the owner's son, and spurning the privileges granted to them as tenants to bring fruitfulness, the owner of the vineyard will come and kill the tenants and give the vineyard to somebody else. Jesus then quotes from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone the builders rejected, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, even though he was killed, will become the cornerstone, will become the the, the basis upon which the whole of God's expansive kingdom vision for the world is built. Now, 
What is Jesus talking about here? He is talking about Israel, the Jews, primarily. They were the vineyard. Uh, They are referred to in the Old Testament as God's vineyard. And God gave to them the privilege and responsibility to be the bearers of his name and to be the light to the world. The gospel was always to go to the world through Israel in the Old Testament. And the master, the Lord God, looked at the vineyard. It was fruitless. And so he sent his servants, the prophets, and he said, look, come on. We need fruitfulness. And they rejected them. People like Isaiah, again and again and again through history. And then the the last person, perhaps, he said was John the Baptist that we encounter at the beginning of Mark. And Herod had him killed. And then God thinks, well, I'll send the Messiah. The one that they profess to long for. And of course, he sends the Messiah and they will have the Messiah killed. The consequence for the Jews, Israel, God will take the privileges afforded to them and give it to the new people of God, the church. And the one, the son who was killed, will become the cornerstone upon which the church. That's what it's about. What does it mean for us? Well, there are two applications for us. One is this, and it's a personal application. In the end of the day, faith is a personal thing. Uh, And the application, I guess, uh, would be this. There are the same consequences for individuals who reject Jesus as their king. That in the end, he will leave you. And his message will go elsewhere and you will never hear from him again. That's what it's saying. Sober warning. It also has an application, I think, to the church. The church is now, the church in the world or the church in a country or a local church like ours, the church is now the vineyard in whom God has invested his gospel, his truth, his commission. God looks at the church in the world or in a country or a local church like ours and he looks for fruitfulness. And he has that right. And if there is no fruitfulness, then he will turn off the light and the church will die. It's what we see in history. And yet his gospel will move on powerfully in other ways and in other spheres. That's the parable of the tenants. It's a warning to us. Do not reject Jesus as king, for there will be consequences in the end. And it's a pretty tough start, isn't it? But he is king. He's king of kings. He's sovereign. He rules. And then in the middle bit, you'll see uh, there... I've entitled it, Questioning Jesus' Authority as God's Messiah King. The heart of the chapter. And what we get here is that conflict or tension between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders as they question Jesus' authority as king. They question him, and he responds. 
His responses outwit them, are more discerning, they're truth in the face of lies, and they silence them. And in his response, what he also does is show us what it means to be a true follower, a true subject of the king. So what you should be hearing, if the Spirit of God is at work in your mind and heart, when you hear his answers, is, good answer, I want to follow you. That's what you should be feeling, that tug. Or you might be like the scribe that we read about, who will kind of feel, good answer, a good answer, I might think about following you. It's a different kind of response. The one place you don't want to be in is standing in the shoes of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Herodians. And do not think that they are pantomime villains who do not look like some of us in churches like evangelical churches like this. You don't want to be where they are who ask the question, do not listen to the answer, and three days later say, crucify him. That's a dangerous place to be, but many are there. Question one. And the clear sense we get from verse 13 is a persistent challenge to Jesus' authority. Their intent, verse 13, is to trap him in his talk. And uh, verse 13, they, the religious leaders, came up and said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true. Here's a description of a sincere Christian or a church that is a living church. Teacher, we know that you are true a person of truth and integrity, and do not care about anyone's opinion. What that means is not that you're indifferent or blasé or flippant about other people's opinions. It means that you will not sway from a clear opinion, whatever anyone says. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now there's a great call to the church in the western part of the world today. Would that God were able to say, we know that you are true, do not care about anyone's opinions, that you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Let's pray it's true of this church. And uh, they come to Jesus with a question. Now, these questions are not kind of thought up on the spur of the moment. I suspect there would be endless meetings beforehand in the coffee shops or wherever they had in Jerusalem. What can we get him on? What can we ask? What can we say to him? I know. Let's trap him. Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And you can almost see them kind of suppressing the smiles on their faces. What a great question. He can't win. If he says yes, well, the Jews are not going to follow him because he's siding with the Romans. If he says, no, we shouldn't, 1,000 tons of bricks will fall with the weight of Rome on his head. So what is he going to say? Well, Jesus says to them, verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, he didn't say that out loud, he just knew what was in their hearts. He said to them, give me a coin. So one of them goes into his tunic or his robes and he gets a coin out and uh, 
Jesus takes the coin, a denarius, and he says, whose face is on it? If it was a 10 pence piece or a 20 pence piece today, it would have Queen Elizabeth on it. There it had Caesar on it. And it's the same thing, though. And, and, he, and he said, Caesar. So he says, well, give it to him. It's his. Of course, you should pay taxes. But give to God what is God's. Now, the word Jesus uses is critical here. He says, whose image is the word in Greek? Whose image is on the coin? That's the word he uses in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, for the image of God in humanity. Whose image does the coin bear? Give it to Caesar because it is his image. And give to God what is God's. Who bears the image of God? You do. Humans do. Give your life to God. Give Caesar his coin, but give your life to the King of Kings. That's what he's saying. And what are the applications of this? Number one, I hope you're paying your taxes. And some of you students as well. <laughs> is that a legitimate application? Um, I think probably it is. I think Christians do need to exhibit quality and probity in public life and in, in life and society. So um, we've got a couple of tax inspectors in the church, and if you're not paying your taxes, I'll introduce you to them afterwards. But that's not the key application, of course, is it? The key application is, have you given your life to Jesus? Isn't that wonderfully unqualified and liberating and radical and worth following? Have you given your life to Jesus? Isn't it great that Jesus doesn't say to us, well, have you considered kind of creating a bit of space for me in your life? Have you given me your life? What does it mean? It means, have you given your unforgiven life to me as your Savior for the forgiveness, for the reconciliation, for the transformation, the restoration? Have you given me your life so I can indwell you with my Holy Spirit and thoroughly change you? So have you? You'll know if you have and you'll know if you haven't. Let me ask the question another way. Who is in control of the bridge of the ship that is your life? Who has the controls? Now, there's a lot of clearing up work to be done in our life, and that work will never be fully done. But who has the bridge? Who controls the bridge means that every rivet on the ship in the end will be changed. Does Jesus have your life? Give him your life, your all. You see what I mean when I, I said that the, that the way we should hear this, that the Spirit is at work in our lives, is good answer, I want to follow you. It's both. Right, hard on the heels of the Pharisees come the Sadducees, verse 18. Sadducees came to him and say that there is no resurrection, and they asked Jesus a question. The Sadducees were a particular brand within Judaism who did not believe in resurrection and life after death. And Jesus had said again and again, I'm going to die, but after three days be raised to life. Resurrection is right at the heart of Jesus' message. And their question is intended to show the absurdity 
of belief in the resurrection and thereby to undermine Jesus' authority. And so they say, verse 19, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, they are referring to a a nuanced little uh, obscure bit of Old Testament uh, scripture, the law of Moses, uh, something called leveret marriage. And I'll bank on the fact that most of you don't know what that is. Leveret marriage was a practice whereby if uh, somebody uh, died, the widow would be taken care of by the brother of the deceased if they were unmarried, marrying that widow. And so on and so forth. To protect the widow, to protect her rights, to protect her family uh, line. And uh, the Sadducees, and it is sad what they do, no pun intended, they try to come up with the perfect scenario to prove the illogicality of resurrection. They say, okay, Jesus, give us an answer to this. A woman marries a man, he dies. His brother marries her. There are no children. He dies, she marries his brother. And it happens seven times. When they're raised from the dead, Jesus, which one is she going to pick? Which one is she going to be married to? And again, you can see them in the corner, smugly. Now, I've never been asked a question about leveret marriage in an evangelistic event. But what I've encountered again and again from people is questions without any desire to know the answer. Questions about questions. Questions to to render something implausible. Questions to trip up. Questions to show how clearer we are than the Lord Jesus. And Jesus' answer is striking. He says, you are quite wrong at the end of verse 27. Before that, in truth, much more devastating, he tells them why they are wrong. He says, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You do not know the Scriptures. What a provocative statement to these professors of theology, these experts in the Old Testament Scriptures. You do not know them. And responding specifically to their question about resurrection, he says that in the life to come, The resurrected life is not simply a mirror, a parallel exactly of life here. For one thing, there is no marriage in the new creation as there is here. Verse 26, Jesus is even more pointed. He says to them in their area of expertise, which is the law of Moses, have you not heard in the book of Moses, the passage about the burning bush in Exodus, how God said, I am the God, not of the dead, but of the living. Resurrection is real. It's all over the Old Testament. Now, what's the principle or the application here? I guess it's this. You can be an expert in the Bible without understanding it. It's a bit like, I used this comment a few weeks ago. A number of you have... uh, commented to me about this comment. You can write a book on evangelism, but never do evangelism. You can be an expert in the Bible, but not understand it. You can know what it says without ever hearing it. It's a living word of God. 
You can know what it says and twist it and spin it so it says something else. You can pretend it says what it doesn't say. And Jesus not only establishes here his supreme authority as God's king, but explains that a true follower of Jesus is someone who knows Scripture, who knows the Bible and accepts it as the word of God. Some of you in a church family love bird watching. I can't understand why. And uh, one of you uh, explained it to me, and I was fascinated in the explanation. You go and you watch a bird, and that particular bird, which is just a bird to me, it's like a sheep is a sheep to most of us. You watch that bird, and you understand its particular habitat and where it thrives. And you know that it likes wading in water or nesting in trees. And, and, and the bird thrives in that habitat. Psalm 1, beginning of the Bible. The Word of God for the Christian is the habitat in which they delight and live and have their being. So is the Word of God for you something that you observe and read and are interested in? Or is it the, the Word of a living God? Is it the place where you live and thrive and turn to for counsel and food and drink and resources for life? And the second application from the Lord Jesus is even more powerful. Not simply that you know the Word of God as the Word of God, but the power of God in your life. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you feel uh, that you're kind of uh, flying six feet above the earth. It means that you are listening now and paying attention, that's one thing. But that what I'm saying to you is not relevant. What the Bible is saying to you is, and it makes sense in your life, and it's changing you, and you are listening to a sermon about following Jesus as King, and if the living power of the Spirit is within you, you will not be indifferent to your majesty, your King, saying to you, will you love me some more? Will you follow me with more devotion than you have? That's what it means to know the power of God in your life. You may hear that as an encouragement. You may hear that as a rebuke. It depends where we are in the Christian life. But it's real and it's living. The power of God and the Word of God. So, who would you rather be like over here? The, the Sadducees? And, and don't caricature them as people with robes and dog collars and all that kind of stuff. There are lots of people in the evangelically church world like this. They're not pantomime villains. They look like us. Would you rather be like them who are inquirers, who are sophisticated in their understanding, who question Jesus, who consider this or consider that, but who do not really know the Bible and do not know the power of God in their life? They're neutrals, observing the game of life. Or would you rather be over here and be someone who knows, who loves, who lives in the Word of God, and who knows the power of God in their life. Would you rather be a neutral on the terracing of the Christian life or a passionate supporter who feels, who feels the pleasure of victory and who feels the pain of defeat? Surely, this one's better. Many people will choose this. Why? Because to have this to have this, you need to yield your life to the king, to the king. Third question, and a very different kind of question. 28, one of the scribes comes up 
and hears them disputing with one another. This man is different. I think he's sincere in his questions. But he, he's, he's a kind of, I worry for him in a way, or people like him, because he's close. He's close. He's nearly in, but he's not in yet. Seeing that Jesus answered them well, he said, which commandment, Jesus, is the most important? And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, which was the call to Israel. This man is a Jew, so he would understand this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is no other than him. Therefore, love him. Love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater uh, than these. And with supreme authority, Jesus sums up the true intent and purpose of the law and Scripture, which was to be a life of love for God and a life of love for one another. And that is so very different from the Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, the religious, anything but a life of wholehearted, single-minded devotion to God and to their neighbor. Rather, a life of rules and ritual and religion, power and authority. Let me arrest the application disappearing from us in an evangelical church. It could be a life of singing and ritual and fun and fellowship and all your friends. It could just be the same as this, not a life of utter devotion to the king and utter devotion to uh, one um, another. And uh, the scribe's reaction is striking. He says, what, he says, Jesus, to be fair, that's pretty appealing compared to all this surface false stuff. All these sacrifices we, we do, all the rituals that we go through. Maybe you're sitting here and, and, and you're, you're part of an evangelical world of religion and you're suddenly waking up to the fact that loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and loving the people sitting next to you, even the unlovely ones beside you, is a far more attractive way to live and a far more attractive community to be part of. And uh, Jesus says to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. John Wesley, the day he became a Christian, and he's not a good example because he's extraordinary, but John Wesley opened his daily light the day he became a Christian, and he read Mark chapter 12, I think it's verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And before that day was done, he sought out how to enter into the kingdom of God. Wesley went to Aldersgate, heard the gospel from Romans, and gave his life to Christ. You are not far from the kingdom of God. I wonder through the years when that text has been preached, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I have no idea if there is anyone here who is not far from the kingdom of God. Almost certainly there will be. If you are not far from the kingdom of God, you are not in the kingdom of God, but you're nearly in. In front of you, two feet away, like this scribe, is Jesus Christ, who is the gate into his kingdom. How do you enter in? You bow before him as king with a repentant heart and ask him to forgive your sins and enter into his kingdom. So if you are not far from the kingdom of God, don't get to the end of today 
Be like John Wesley and find your way in. Now the final question Jesus answers versus, asks verses 35 to 37. He asks the question, and the question he asks is, um, how can the son of David, the king of the Old Testament, how can his descendant also be David's king? I mean, the answer is Jesus is both uh, the son of David by descent and David's greater son because he is the Messiah. And the silence. And they're all amazed. They're all amazed. And there's another kind of sting in the tail of this passage. Often you see people who are amazed or captivated or struck or the Spirit of God is at work in them. And yet, three weeks, three days, whatever later, it's gone. And that happened here. The people who cried, Hosanna, chapter 11, the people who were amazed here, three days later, cried out, crucify him. Now, we finish up with uh, a picture of Mark's uh, model disciple. What is the model disciple like? Who are we aiming to be like? Let's read verses 38 to the end. In his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who, look, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and of the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Now, this is not saying you've got to give all your possessions to the Lord Jesus. He can ask of that. We meet somebody in chapter 14 who was enormously wealthy and who gave something to him. The point here is she gives him these two coins. Now, think of how the coins have figured in this narrative. The point is she gave him her all. The point is she was thoroughly ordinary. She's nameless, like most of Mark's model disciples. She does not look the part from the outside, but she is the part from the inside. All of us this morning look the part. I look the part in your eyes. Am I on the inside of God's kingdom or not? That's from my heart in God. You don't know by looking at me. I could preach a smart sermon. I don't know by looking at you. It's our hearts that matter. She's a humble woman who loved the Lord with all her heart, all her soul, all her mind, and all her strength, and who gave her life to him. So the two questions this text in Mark leaves us with, one, are you in the kingdom of God or not? If you're not, then I encourage you to find your way in while there is time just glance over into chapter 13 in your mind. Don't look at it in your Bibles. You don't have time. It's a scary chapter. He will return and you will kneel before him because you are forced to and he will judge you for all eternity 
if you say no. Second question to those of us who are in the kingdom. Are you a neutral on the terracing of the Christian life? Or do you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you zealous for my glory? Are you passionate about gospel progress? And do you bear the scars with me of gospel setbacks? That's an attractive way to live. Now, just to give our musicians a bit of warning and the person on the video, I want us to sing the song we sang before the sermon again. I think it's maybe a better song for us to close with. Is that okay? You guys can manage that. Let me pray as they go and scrabble around with their bits of paper. Our Father, we thank you for the authority of Jesus as King. We pray, Lord, that we will be faithful and loyal subjects of King Jesus. If we are not far from the kingdom of God, may we find our way in. If we have been in the kingdom of God for many years but have not been devoted to the king, may we recover that devotion and loyalty and love for him. And may all of us who are in the kingdom this morning move on in our commitment, in our devotion, in our love, and in thereby our deep assurance and peace and joy and security that is found in being a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Thank you for the black and white nature of the call of the gospel and for the willingness of the Lord Jesus to welcome us in or welcome us back, and we pray in his name. Amen.